good knows when you control a million dollars of real estate and it doubles in value, which it will eventually, now you've just made a million bucks, right? And so um, that whole thing of, of to the point of, I remember when I read stories in there about the receive a million, right? Mm. And it was a guy making a million dollars from real estate in one year. And to mm. me, that was just a mind blower. I was like, I, I didn't even, it didn't resonate with me. It, sh- it didn't necessarily shock me, but it was just like, it was sort of like realizing something's the possible. It's like somebody who never realized you could go to the moon and they're like, really? We went to the moon in 1969? And then you did it. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And, but it's like some guy living in Africa that didn't even know it was possible. It was kind of like me. Like, really? That's possible that someone could do that. Right. You've got to find successful people. Put yourself in an environment where you can meet people that are successful and be of service to them. Right. Pick, pick their brain. Right. Understand, um, you know, um, get exposed to new ideas because you, you want to have a good understanding of what what the possibilities are and then find something that, you know, that fits themselves. Right. With no limitations. What does your perfect day look like? What if it's possible to live like that every day? Would you wake up after 9am, have perfect health, maybe fire your boss, have the money and freedom to do what you love most? The world is your oyster. Where would you be? Who would you be with? The possibilities are endless. Whether you believe it's possible for you or not, you can make more, work less and live free. Welcome to Freedom Hack Radio, where entrepreneur, best-selling author, world traveler and adventurer, Bryce Robertson and special guests crack the code on money, health, relationships, spirituality and having fun doing what you love most. Be inspired to create your own self-designed freedom lifestyle. Welcome back to another episode of Freedom Hack Radio, where you learn to live by the freedom trinity of financial freedom, time freedom, and location freedom. I'm your host, Bryce Robertson, and today I'm super excited to have two special guests with me, Mr. Brian Miller and Mr. David Coe. Brian has built an investment portfolio with 60 streams of income and enjoy, enjoys a portion of the cash flow from over 25,000 rental units, which includes single family rentals, self storage units, mobile home parks, retail strip malls, trust deeds, and multifamily apartments. Brian has invested in luxury home construction as well as major turnaround projects like a 188 unit multifamily asset that went from 8% occupancy to 94% occupancy. Brian has invested in 30 flips and is currently building 132 homes slash units across Los Angeles with his development partners. He enjoys helping and educate others on the benefits of real estate investing and life-changing results that it offers. Also joining us today is David Coe. David is a real estate investor and advisor representing both homeowners and investors with the Coe Real Estate team. Coe Real Estate is based in Hermosa Beach and specializes in the South Bay area of Los Angeles, California. As an advisor, Dave caters to both active and passive real estate investors because tenants aren't for everyone. 
Dave doesn't just preach investing, he's an active investor himself. He leads a team that's doing ultra luxury redevelopment in the Hollywood Hills and runs a fund that buys non-performing real estate notes. Dave also founded the South Bay chapter of Four Investors by Investors, a real estate investment club that is 100% focused on educating and networking with absolute zero sales pitch allowed. Dave is also very active in the South Bay community and is a proud board member of the Redondo Beach Education Foundation. Uh, Brian and Dave, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks, thanks Brian. Good having us. Yeah, I'm super stoked to have you guys here. This is the first time we've got two guests going on, so I love it. Um, so, you know, I'm going to ask questions and let's just do it in alphabetical order of names. So, Brian, if you want to answer first and then Dave, you do it afterwards. Um, you know, Brian, the last time you and I were hanging out together, it was in the Intelligent Investors Real Estate Conference in, in Los Angeles. And you, me, and, and Jason Mueller from Beach City Capital, we hijacked the band, we took it over, we were rocking it out. It was an epic jam session. That was a blast, man. That was a super great night. Um, just part of this whole thing. I know what one of the things you stress is relationship, right? That, you know, what is it good to gain the whole world and be a lonely old guy, right? So um, just doing stuff in community, hanging, hanging out, having fun. The, the fact that there is no competition or anything. We're all in the same thing. We're all cheering for each other. When Dave does well, it's great. When Bryce does well, it's great. Um, and that's a, that's a beautiful thing. You don't see that in all industries. So. I love that fact that we can all, like when we were hanging out, it's everybody, hey, what are you doing? What can I learn from you? Do you know something I might not know? And that sense of um, camaraderie and, and helpfulness is a, is a great thing. It is, absolutely. It is, absolutely. And yeah. you really bust out on the keyboard. Oh, thank you, thank you. It was a good time. Clearly, he's got some musical talent. Look at his office, for Christ's sakes. <laughs> yeah, that's not just for show, is it? Yeah. And then Dave, mate, last time we were hanging out, I mean, that was at the Intelligent Investors Real Estate Conference in LA. But before that, we bumped into each other when we were in Prague in the Czech Republic. And it was just a random, hey, man, is that Dave? That's totally Dave and Brooke. And so then, you know, you and me and our wives, we ended up hanging out for the day and we went to uh, that bone church and cathedrals and we just had a mad time over in Europe there. So that was, that was super awesome. Yeah, one of my, our favorite memories of that trip and, you know, besides the time we got to spend and kind of reconnect, it's not always when you're all, all the way to the other side of the world and you hear someone yell your name and it's actually someone who knows you. Um, that was super cool, but like hearing your guys' journey and what you guys were on and your, your, your path through, through Europe and I think started in South America and then, you know, like the rest of our vacation after that, we were really like, all right, how, how do we want to restructure our lives and, and start doing some of the types of things that, that Bryce and Tiff are doing and, and change things around. So like Brian was just talking about, you know, so much of my history is built on networking. That's, that's how I got involved with with Phoebe, it's why I'm still involved with Phoebe, which by the way, we just announced our third annual Intelligent Investors Real Estate Conference um, uh, just last week. So we are gonna be doing it virtually this year versus in person, but we're still hyper-focused on the networking component because connecting with other investors and especially connecting with other operators and, and people that are syndicators and doing cool things in the space, you know, I think the art of investing in real estate, it's not finding the right deals, it's finding the right people that you want to co-invest with. 
um, which is how Brian and I got, got, got connected and started our own thing. And, you know, it's how we got connected with you, Bryce. And, you know, I just think that's a super important part of investing in real estate. It is, it is. And, and on that note, the Intelligent Investors um, Conference that you guys are hosting, I was there last year. Well, actually, it was this year. So it was January this year. It was awesome. And like, I really take my hat off to you guys for putting that together. I've been to a lot of different real estate conferences. And, you know, a lot of conferences talk about the same things over and over again. It's always like how to fix and flip and single family homes. And you guys like covered a whole broad variety of different ways to make um, to make cash flow and, and huge equity, you know, talking about self storage and you were talking about the markets and multifamily and mobile home parks. And, and um, I mean, talking about raising capital and, and tons of different things there as well. And I, I feel like there was just a ton of value from a lot of the speakers and a lot of the people in the room and the networking was off the hook. Like I've been to a lot of events and usually I leave there going, yeah, that was pretty cool. But I left there just like juiced going, man, that was just a really freaking awesome event. So I'm glad you guys are doing it this year. How are you going to handle um, doing it online? So it's going to be a, well, a three-day event. There'll be a fourth optional day, which is a VIP day, which anyone who's interested in listening, do the VIP day. Thursday afternoon, we're going to do this uh, VIP roundtable with all of us that kind of organize the event and one of our primary sponsors. And it's going to be uh, kind of like an economic roundtable. Uh, it's in early January, so think about this, right? In January, we're going to be through an election. We maybe um, have a vaccine for a pandemic. Um, we could have um, uh, we could have federal lobs of money that are no longer being infused into the economy. So I think the outlook for where things are going to be in 21 and 22, that time in January is going to be a kind of a critical time to hear where things are economically what, you know, what we're kind of looking at. And it's very much meant to be a round table discussion, not an economic presentation. So, uh, but, you know, we're going to be doing uh, the other three days will be, you know, three half days of content uh, interspersed with networking opportunities. And, and we're still going to, we're structuring the, the conference to where um, there'll be periods of time where people can go and check out the sponsor booths and have interaction with our sponsors, which, you know, most of our sponsors are, uh, you know, a curated group of people like you, Bryce, like you were one of our sponsors last year. It's people that we have a relationship with, not people that we just know will write the check. Um, as well as we're going to, you know, create these moments where we can group investors together in groups of six or seven people, give them a chance, you know, for 15 minutes to kind of introduce themselves. And hopefully that'll be a moment in time where they can form a relationship and set up a time later in the conference or just another point in time where they can have a more in-depth conversation with people that they meet. So we're still going to be pushing the networking really, really hard. I think that's what our our users and our attendees really value from, from our conference, as well as delivering the same type of killer content that we have for the last few years. That's awesome. And, uh, you know, like the whole networking thing, like that's literally how I've built my business. I know that's how you guys have built your business as well. And that's where the magic's at. Totally. Also the, the state of the economy conversation that you guys are going to have the round table. Oh my God, is that going to be important? I mean, I I'm at the moment spending at least two hours a day with my finger on the pulse of the economy because things are moving that quickly. And it's just such an important topic right now. We really, really need to know our landscape so that we can handle like what, 
what's going on because the same things that may have worked, we have to tweak them a little bit. We, we have to like shift to, to, to mold with the current economical circumstances and things as they unfold. So that, that's going to be super powerful. And I know that you guys have a, a lot of really intelligent guys that will be coming to the table to talk about that. So I'm super amped on that one. I want to get into uh, talking about capital stack here. But before we do that, I've got a pretty important question. I'm going to start with you, Brian. Brian, what's giving you the most gratitude today, brother? Oh, man. Um, good, great question. That's, it's a long list because when you really think about it, I mean, we live in a country where, you know, we, we still have a lot of freedoms, <laughs> even though a few might have gotten uh, erased temporarily. But just that we have so much opportunity that uh, a guy like me can grow up in, uh, on, the, on the lower end of the economic spectrum and through hard work and making good decisions can end up on the high end of the economic spectrum. Uh, that's a beautiful thing. Like to, my family is a beautiful thing. Very grateful for that. Uh, grateful for this time, right? That we get to hang out. Like there's something about being along, around people that are jacked and excited and a quest for life. And that's why when we were hanging out together, you know, it's like, oh, those Aussies, man, you, you gotta go hang out with them. Like, it's just, it's contagious, right? And so there's, there's many things, but I'd say right now, relationships, family, and just the, the opportunity. That's awesome. And the opportunity in America is huge. It's, it's awesome. And that's what I wrote my book about with the real estate mates, 10,000 miles to the American dream. It's all about, you know, the freedom that we have here to be able to invest and start businesses in America. And actually I wrote, I read um, an article and watched a video the other day relating to uh, a lady that was over in, um, where is it? Uh, uh, like the Croatia, that sort of area. And she was like really amped up on like the importance of maintaining freedom in America. And I just thought like, why is she so invested in this? She doesn't even live here. And then she actually said that the reason why she's so invested in it is because America is like the last chance of like holding freedom. And so it's like super important right now that we do maintain that and keep that up because I do believe we live in the land of opportunities and I've been to like 60 countries and these opportunities don't exist. I haven't seen them this abundant in other places. So I, I totally get you on that one, man. Excellent. And then uh, Dave, what's giving you gratitude today, brother? Well, I'll say, first of all, the health, my health, the health of my family. Um, you know, obviously we've got a worldwide pandemic happening and, and uh, while there are things that I am encouraged about this thing being over and us getting back to some sense of normalcy. I also would say that I'm, I've been pretty thankful and, and we, we give gratitude every day. There's been some parts of this thing about, you know, the stay at home orders and the pandemic that have actually been positive, right? Like my wife and I, we aren't spending as much time driving all over the city and commuting for work. And we've kind of reconnected with our family and, um, you know, like uh, th there's been efficiencies that we found both in, you know, our businesses, our personal lives, um, you know, certainly with our investing, right? There, there are things now that we've been forced to do that maybe will be good long-term changes. So, you know, while the pandemic, I think, has a lot of negative connotations, and again, I'm excited for it to be uh, in the past, um, I think we've also learned some great lessons that I think we can take with us moving forward. And I'm thankful that, you know, we, we are still finding a way to find, you know, a positive in the world around us during these crazy times. I totally agree. And, you know, I think that the whole stay at home thing was like putting a spotlight on our lives and going, do you love where you live? Do you love the people you're surrounded by? Like, have you really created the life that you want? 
And, and, and for those who answered no to any of those, it's opportunity to go, well, hey, cool. I know what to like change now. So I totally agree. I, I, I get that too. Um, so can you guys just bring us up to pace? And we'll start with you, Brian. Just like, how did you come to be an investor? Like what, what happened on your path to becoming an investor? And, and why did that happen? Um, well, I would say, you know, specifically in the real estate world, right? Um, so I give a lot of credit to my mother-in-law. So she was a single mom, um, never made a ton of money, but she was a real estate agent along the way. She bought um, houses. And so she had four free and clear houses when she was in, you know, in her 60s. And she'd be like, hey, I'm, I'm going to Ireland this, uh, you know, for a couple of weeks. I'm going to Egypt to go see the pyramids. I'm going. And like, it's like, hey, take note of that. That's, uh, you know, pay attention to that. Right. And one of that benefits of cash flow is, you know, I, I grew up, my dad lived through the depression, all that kind of good stuff, that real scarcity mindset. So even if you end up with this big pile of money, right, you don't know how long you're going to need that pile of money, right? You could maybe pretend to live off the 4% rule. Maybe that's going to work out. Maybe not. But there's always this fear like, oh, wow, like maybe I'm going to need more later. Maybe I'm going to have a big health bill, maybe, right? So that sense of freedom, right, which is kind of what we're, the, the goal of this, right, is freedom. So knowing that you have 20 grand or 30 grand or whatever number you can build it to coming in next month, right? It gives you a lot of freedom to spend that 20 or 30 grand or give it away, do whatever you want with that, knowing that more is coming, right? As opposed to just the, the, the big pile and just like um, nervously spending that down, hoping not to run out or hoping to run out the, the week that you die, right? To me, yeah. there's, that's just a horrible way to live. And there's not a lot of freedom in that. So specifically, that was the reason I was really drawn to real estate investing was this perpetual stream of cash flow that you could count on. And if you were slightly irresponsible with that, it's okay, because next month's coming. So you were so you were pretty inspired, like from youth, like and you were just, so did you hit it straight out of the gate? Like when you turned like 17, 18, were you getting involved straight away? Or was there a bit of a drawn out path to it? I had drawn out path for sure. Um, so I was drawn to it. Um, I actually looked at a building in the uh, early 90s. How about this, Dave? It was a sixplex in the valley, right? Six units for, oh, three, for 300 grand. <laughs> it's probably worth like 3.3 now at, the, at this point. So, but, you know, the timing wasn't right. Um, you know, my wife wasn't ready or comfortable with that. And so, and it was like that thing when people are scared, right? Everybody runs from real estate and it, it's, it's fear-based. But then kind of gearing myself and preparing for that, then when we had our big crash in 2008, 9, 10, 11, was really when we set ourselves up. Because at that, by that point, educated, prepared, had bought a couple rentals, but, and then knew, okay, this is how this goes. And so when, when everybody else was running and fearful, then we kind of, I call it charging into a burning building, because everybody else is coming out screaming. And then we were like, hey, this, this looks pretty good, right? This is... Uh, you know, we're buying for $33 a square foot. This is way, you know, it's going to cost 100 to rebuild it, right? So at some point, I knew it had to come back. Um, I didn't expect it to come back like two and a half years later, three years after, but uh, that was just an upside. But I think that thing of just being prepared, realizing, getting some experience in it, and then when you see opportunity, being willing to kind of roll the dice, knowing what you know, and thinking, okay, all the math really makes sense on this. 
Yeah. And, and talking about like, you know, when everybody else is running the other way, like that's when the opportunity exists. I mean, I feel like that's kind of what's happening now and that's what we're coming into to now. There's, there's going to be a lot of people that are going to be scared of real estate for, for a whole bunch of reasons. And we can get into that later on in the conversation. But um, I, I truly believe, and I don't know what you guys think, but I truly believe that right now and, and in the coming months and coming years, we're on maybe one of the biggest opportunities in our life um, from an investing perspective. Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely agree with that. I, I, I don't think it's going to be quite the opportunity that, you know, we had in 2009, 2010, um, just because I think the, the, the single family market is a lot stronger and, and will survive better than it did before. But I definitely think on the commercial side, and again, I mean, I think what we've had right now, which is it, we've had a recession and I guess technically we're out of the recession, right? Like, I mean, we've actually... GDP is reverse course, but I don't think the impacts of COVID is going to be felt for the next couple of years. And I think there'll be some fundamental changes in, in, in how commercial real estate will perform moving forward. And I absolutely think that's going to create some great opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. And so how about you, Dave, mate? Were you investing straight out of the womb? What was your path? No, I, I wasn't. In, in fact, you know, my, my, my desire to be a real estate investor was, was really because I wanted to be a better dad. You know, when, when I had two young kids, I was working a corporate job. I traveled a lot. And when my kids were six and four and starting to do cool things, I was always gone. And uh, when Brian talked about that freedom, that's exactly what I wanted as well. I, I wanted the freedom of creating my own, my own calendar, having control over my own schedule, right? Be, being able to, you know, pick up my kids from school, coach their football teams, all that kind of thing. That was my, that was my big why. That was my purpose. And, you know, we started fixing and flipping houses right around that 2007, 2008 timeframe. And we were loving it. And then all of a sudden 2009 came around and when everything changed, you know, we were the people running out of the building with our hair on fire yeah. right? because we didn't really, we didn't really have a good sense from a macro perspective of how mm -hmm. markets work. We were all, we were just super focused on, Hey, you buy a house, you fix it up and, and you sell it, which is what we love to do, right? As, as, as homeowners. And as we were starting our investment portfolio, we were starting to buy some rentals here and there. We had kind of fixed and flipped a couple of our own houses that we lived in. Um, so, it, you know, that kind of, you know, pushed me to find, um, to find more, more information, you know, find better people to get connected with, which is how I got connected to Phoebe in the first place. Uh, and then I just started learning so much more about, you know, most people think real estate investing is you just buy a house and you fix it up and you resell it, right? Like that's the most basic real estate investment um, or, you know, you keep it and you hold it. And, you know, what we've learned is that it's such a small sliver of the opportunity that's out there, um, you know, and, and, you know, one of the, one of the key pieces of advice I always give people is that, you know, every real estate deal is right for someone and wrong for someone else. Successfully investing in real estate is about knowing thyself and having a, a game plan and, and knowing how you want to invest. If you're looking for cash flow, like Brian was talking about, then you know that's going to kind of gear where you should go. Um, versus if you don't need the cash flow, you're just looking to build your net wealth. Well, that's another type of um, goal that you should have, and you should be looking for investments that fill that. So, you know, for me, the, the journey of just wanting to spend more time with my family and my kids, and be a better husband, and be a better dad, and be a better son, and all that type of stuff, 
kind of forced me into real estate. I think real estate investing gave me the opportunity to have that kind of freedom. And then along the way, I've just learned so much and met so many people. That's awesome. And like, I, I have the same reason too. I mean, it, to, to me, it's all about freedom. You know, the more money I make, the more free I am. And um, that's awesome that we all have that same experience, but we're looking at it from a different perspective. That's great. So uh, Brian, how, how has investing uh, changed your life? Um, I would say I, I don't worry very much about the future. Um, you know, that's, that's really been a big thing. And I think you know, I think a lot of people, they talk about in this thing that, you know, people have, maybe the average American has a couple hundred dollars worth of savings and with their income disruption, right, that they burn through that, or even if it's a couple thousand dollars, it doesn't take long to burn through that. Um, to me, that would be very apprehensive way to live, right? Uh, it would, again, hard to have a lot of freedom or peace of mind in that situation. Um, so I would say just, just knowing it's like, okay, good. The, the financial thing is, is this, it's like a snowball. And, you know, it starts really at, at first, like, you know, maybe you're breaking even, or you're making a hundred bucks a month, and then you get another place and maybe you're 200 ahead. And then you realize, oh, well, I got a little bit of appreciation. So actually I made maybe, you know, $300 each month for the last while. And then you hit certain opportunities. You realize like, oh, wow, I've actually made a thousand dollars every month, even though that wasn't coming all in as cash flow, it might've been appreciation, but you see this this thing. And then from one house, you can leverage it. You can pull money out. After I bought my single family portfolio, I refinanced that on a portfolio loan and put a bunch of those houses on, on one loan, took out, you know, oh, I think almost close to seven figures. And then from there, I went into syndication deals and found other opportunities because I realized at some point I was building myself a job. If you get too many mm -hmm. single families, right? Yeah, a lot, sure. lot, lot, lot to manage. And that was part of the goal was like, I don't want, I already have a job. I don't really want to build another one. And I don't want, it's not really pure investment, right? If you have to be there, you know, so many hours a week to manage that and oversee that, even though I think it's maybe overhyped, it's not that tough, but it does take time, effort, and energy, but mm -hmm. it's a lot easier to find a great operator, you know, somebody that's like familiar with the space, somebody that has a lot of experience. And, you know, if somebody has got 30 years of experience and they've made millions of dollars themselves, it's like, that's a, that's a person I want to partner with. That's a person I want to say, okay, I, I want you on my team. And if I can come along for the ride, that, that sounds like a good ride. Right. Um, and that's worked out really well as well. So, um, so I think finding, finding opportunities and just leveraging up and to the point where it, it creates freedom and, and less uncertainty about the future. Yeah. And that's a good point too, like on partnering with people and whatnot, you know, when, when you're partnering up with other people, they're like millionaires, multimillionaires. I mean, you could maybe go out there and make a million dollars by chance, um, maybe, or, or get lucky, but like to actually sustainably keep it and grow it, it takes skills. And, and it's kind of like the fruits on the trees, you know, once you see the fruits on the trees, you know, that it's got good roots. And um, that is definitely very important. And then um, how about you, Dave? Um, how has investing changed your life the most, mate? Yeah, I think it's a mindset change, you know, like I think most people get on that corporate America path, you, you, you graduate, you get a job, you start kind of, you know, chugging away at the years and trying to save up money here until one day you can retire and live the life you want to live versus, you know, the, the second that I started investing in real estate and fixing and flipping, I realized that I retired right now. I'm yeah. still working and I'm, I'm going to work for as long as I want because A, I went from doing a job to doing something that I love to do, which yeah. I love real estate. I love the idea of 
like every part of real estate, even the complicated parts, which I'm sure we're going to talk about here soon. Yeah. Like those challenges are, um, are challenges that are, you know, I get excited about having, you know, solving and, and, and leveraging the resources and the knowledge that I've gotten over all these years as an investor, um, you know, and helping to solve these problems. Um, you know, the, 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 the mindset change of I don't have to live someone else's life. I can live my own and create my own path has probably been the biggest impact of, you know, becoming a, you know, a full-time investor slash full-time real estate person, right? I, I still am an active realtor. Uh, I am still practicing here in Southern California. And, um, you know, that those two things have kind of blended in together, right? Like my, my, my real estate career will, will influence my investing and, there, my real estate investing has influenced my, my, my real estate career as well. So, um, you know, I, I've been, I'll say, freed to do what I want to do with my life and, and, you know, be the kind of person that I want to be, not have to be the kind of person that I'm expected to be to fill some kind of role until I get to retirement. And that's cool. And you're an all out guy too, Dave. And like you, you're not the kind of guy that's going to sit down on his butt and do nothing because you're like an active guy. You're a go-getter. You go out there and do things. And, and, you know, well, I mentioned this in your intro, um, you play an active role in your community. And one of the things I love, and I'd love for you to share this with us, but, but you, every year you have an annual crawfish boil up and you like, you basically have like a block party and you just cook up this like epically massive crawfish boil up for everybody. And you, you bring everybody together and you You've got awesome live music and everybody's like, oh man, I can't wait for this thing to happen again next year. Like what, what inspired you to do that? Yeah. The, 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 the Pullman Lane Crawfish Boil, now, now called Walt's Annual Crawfish Boil, uh, named after my dad. Um, it literally started, you know, I, I happen to live on one of those blocks, you know, here in Redondo Beach where every neighbor knows each other. We all grew up as parents together when our kids were young and and, you know, we were, we were trying to figure out what being a parent meant, you know, which was a lot different when they were two and three versus 12 and 13, you know, versus now they're all in their, you know, late teens and 20s. And, um, you know, community was important. And, you know, I'm from Louisiana, which you probably can tell from my Saints helmet here behind mm -hmm. me. Um, and, you know, the, the, the start of summer, you know, the crawfish season runs like, uh, February through pretty much right about now and the height of the season is in May so Memorial Day weekend is historically the weekend where you have a crawfish boil because the crawfish are, are big and it's just the way you kick off summer so we started this 12 years ago we bought out you know one sack of crawfish we had flown out from Louisiana and you know we had like 30 or 40 of our neighbors over and over time, it has grown into this, you know, super large block party. We close the streets off, multiple bands, you know, not this year. This year, obviously, we had to postpone because of COVID. But, mm -hmm. you know, last year, we had, you know, 300 pounds of crawfish that we ate and two live bands. And, you know, what we did is we took that from being a moment where the community just gets together to hang out and everyone brings money in just to cover the cost of the event to where now my real estate company actually covers the cost of it and all that money that people donate, we actually now donate it to the, to the local schools here in Redondo because again, we feel like that's important. So it's become a major fundraising part for my company um, and it's become a major fundraising part for my neighbors and my, my community. And uh, we, we are excited to do it again next year, COVID permitting. 
I mean, and how stoked are you now that you've built that kind of social community where like, especially with all the things that are happening, like, I think it's super important to be connected with our neighbors and, and whatnot and, and have that like community right now with all the chaos that's going on, especially in like LA with all the riots and everything like that. Do you feel that that's been really valuable for you? Like, are you like, yeah, I'm stoked to live in this street. Oh man, I, I, I love it. You know, and again, you know, beyond me, like, my kids have grown up with this group of kids on this block that'll be lifelong friends for them. And they grew up with block parties and they grew up with July 4th and camping trips together. Like that kind of impact that, that the community has invested in our lives and my family's life is something that will last a lifetime. Um, you know, and it's funny, we, we have a, a new neighbor that just moved in the block and, and people love our block because we do things and they think it's the block that does it. And I keep telling him it's not the block, it's the people. If yeah. all of us walked away and people mm -hmm. came in here that didn't value these things, trust me, the parties would end, right? These get togethers would end. So, you know, I'm now encouraging, like we have, you know, we're getting to the age now where these newer families are starting to move in, you know, the same place we were 20 years ago. And we're like trying to hand over like the control of all these events to our neighbors. Cause I want them to have the same kind of experience with their families. And I want their kids to have the same kind of relationships that, you know, with, with the neighborhood kids that, that our kids had as, as well. Um, and, you know, we, we are still investing into all of those relationships and into our community because that's really what community is. It's a bunch of people that care about each other. And, 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 and you know, we still try to have an active part in that. Which is not really the social norm, especially in cities these days. It's, it's not the kind of culture that's being like cultivated. It's, it's a very different sort of, you know, people sitting there and texting and stuff like that, not really connecting. So that's, that's awesome. Hats that's off my, to you guys to keep roots, it alive. Right? Like I grew up in a neighborhood, you know, in the South where, you know, we, we called our neighbors, Mr. and Mrs., uh, you know, Mr. Sam and, you know, Miss Nancy. And, and, you know, we did have that kind of relationships where we would just be able to, to walk into our neighbor's houses at any point in time. And, and we've really worked hard to kind of recreate this here in Redondo. That's awesome. That's awesome. And talking about relationships, um, yourself, Dave, and you, Brian, you guys have teamed up and um, joint ventured and partnered together to create Capital Stack. Um, I'm really excited to, to talk about that and to dig into that. So um, tell us what is Capital Stack? Like unpack that for us and, and, and how did that come about? And, and what are you guys getting up to? Sure, it's kind of been developing over the last three, four years. And it really came about as a result of, you know, friends and family going, like, hey, what are you doing? Or I have some money, or I heard you're in real estate investing. I really want to do that. Um, because, you know, people are drawn to it. They understand or they've heard enough that they understand there's, there's value there. But it's a world that a lot of people don't understand. And it's also a world you can make a lot of mistakes uh, early on if you're not careful. So it really just like, hey, this is what I'm doing, or here's an opportunity that I'm doing, or here's something I'm, you might be interested in as well. So it really just started as that of bringing people alongside, um, you know, most, mostly friends and family that, you know, they had capital, they wanted to see good returns, they saw what was happening to my portfolio, and they wanted, they basically like help us, help us do what you're doing. So that's really the genesis of it. And still what we really want to do is help people find opportunities to take the legwork of vetting operators, of finding proven partners, of really looking and saying like, who, could, who can you trust with your capital? And more importantly, who are we trusting our capital with? 
because, mm. you know, I find the financial services industry is very conflicted, right? Because often you can get somebody advising you to do something based on their commission and they may not have a single penny of their portfolio invested in that. Right. Or yeah. it may be a guy making 60 grand a year advising you how to, how to, you know, invest for the future. Right. I'd rather invest with somebody who's like, you know, made millions of dollars in real estate and has, has learned and, and, you know, and is willing to share that or partner on that. Those are much better relationships. So it's, it's really a vehicle to, basically help people to come alongside what what has worked uh, and what we've seen working yeah and that's so important like no one wants a fat fitness coach and it's, it's like that's <laughs> the kind of thing that i bring up with um with a lot of people who have financial advisors i'm like well okay i i think you're getting bad advice like what's the net worth of your financial advisor and they're like i don't know it's probably not much <laughs> and he's got financial incentives to give you certain products that aren't really in your best interest. And he's only got five or six products to choose from. So, sure. um, so you guys have got a, a whole different setup. So what kind of things like, say I was to come to you and I was saying, Brian, man, like you're making a ton of money. I love what you're doing. How can I be involved? Like, what are you guys up to? What, what is capital stack doing? You want to take the day? Yeah, I'll take that one. So I, I, first of all, I mean, I loved everything Brian just said. And again, you know, Brian and I met through Phoebe. That's actually how we, I'm mean, actually all of us met through Phoebe, right? So that's did. how we got connected we as well. Um, and, you know, I think where Capital Stack started is, um, you know, again, Brian and I built this relationship. Brian, you said it was three years ago, but it's really been longer than that. You guys, you and I have been having conversations about investing in real estate probably for what, seven or eight years now, maybe longer. Yeah, seven, seven and seven, eight, yes. Yeah. So, so, you know, over time, Brian and I became friends and, and then we started kind of doing some things together and co-investing together. And I think where, where Capital Stack's a little bit different and, and what we're kind of into now is we are, first of all, super focused on Southern California, new construction, right? Like that, that's, that's where we're anchored right now. Uh, and most people are terrified of California. Most people are terrified of new construction. Um, you know, because they, they are riskier plays, but we think, you know, when you look at Southern California in particular, you know, on an international stage, it's still a fairly new market there. You know, when you compare our, the cost of our real estate prices to markets like San Francisco, New York, London, um, Tokyo, like LA is still relatively inexpensive and there's still, we have such a robust economy here. And I know there's a lot of like bad press out about people that are leaving California, but when you really look at immigration, you know, leaving California, coming into California, most of the people that are leaving are people that are either younger or older, low income kind of people that can't afford to live here. But most of the people that are coming are young professionals that are in good time, you know, in, in, in really high paying jobs, and, you know, that's kind of what, you know, we're seeing as a trend that will continue. And, you know, I, I would say where we're currently anchored is on projects that are creating millennial housing, right? And taking advantage of millennials that are looking to either buy their first time property, or maybe it's an apartment building, but it's new and it's super cool. And it's got modern design, someplace they want to rent before they're looking to buy, we see that as being an opportunity um, that, you know, that, that's, a, that's an immediate opportunity right now and something that's going to continue for the next few years. 
Yeah, that's an interesting place to focus on too. Um, Harry Dent has a saying called the buyers and the dyers. And the buyers are the millennials because they're coming up on their spending uh, cycle in their generation. And then also the baby boomers, the dyers are actually sort of dying off and, and retiring and coming out of their spending wave. So accommodating to the millennials is, is like the biggest sort of um, a demographic to be focusing on um, as far as generations go. So what specific things are you guys doing to actually accommodate for millennials? Like, what does that look like? What specific uh, attributes are you having to your investments that you would say accommodate to millennials? Yeah, we call it making sure you have the Instagrammable house, right? Everybody, you know, it's like, it's got to like look really cool, right? And, and the houses that we're involved with do look really cool. It's what they want to, you know, nobody... They, I guess that same buyer could buy a beat up 1950s house with shag carpet, right? But it just does not look good in photos and it's not really appealing to that market. They don't necessarily want a yard. They don't want the maintenance. So to buy something brand new that looks beautiful, that's gonna take no maintenance, um, that's really that buyer. Also putting in smart home technology, right? So you can walk in and say, hey, Alexis, uh, Alexa, turn on party music, right? And boom, there it goes, turn off the lights. Um, all kinds of features like that that really appeal to that demographic. Did Alexa just turn off your lights, Brian? There, there you go. Hey, Alexa, <laughs> yeah, turn back on the light. You said it. <laughs> you got to say a different name. Um, so, so this is so I, I understand that experience, and uh, I'm just thinking like, is this something that's going to cost a lot more money? Like, does it cost a ton more per unit or per living space to actually accommodate and have these things and and have these additional items, or is it actually just kind of like an image that it costs more? Is it very comparable to similar projects you would have done before you were accommodating to millennials? I, I, I think it costs a little bit more, but that incremental cost to add some of these things offer a huge amount of value in the overall you know, performance of the investment. Um, you know, Brian mentioned high design is super important. Um, you know, millennials love new construction and Bryce, you, you, you certainly is, um, you know, will understand this. Like this generation would rather be hiking through Patagonia than ripping out a kitchen and putting in countertops, right? That's just mm -hmm. not their vibe. You know, they're, they're, they're socially conscious. They want to spend time, you know, seeing the world. Um, and they also are very green conscious, right? So a lot of the projects that we're involved with right now, you know, things like solar panels and, um, you know, electric car chargers, like, you know, we, we're trying to take elements like that, that really aren't that much more expensive to deliver, but build that into the unit. And, you know, where, where we're kind of targeting is the end product that's a buyer that is probably a first or maybe a second time home buyer, right? So someone that's renting and just starting now to come into, you know, the realization of the benefits of buying a home and home ownership and, and some of the long-term financial benefits of owning something versus renting something. Um, and then giving them something that is move-in ready, that is super cool and Instagram, because that's, that's exactly what they covet. Um, and something where they feel like there's, um, you know, there, there's all the super cool technology. A lot of our buyers are gamers or they're working in the entertainment space. And, you know, so making sure that there's high speed internet on every, you know, in every inch of our homes, things like that, you know, we, we are definitely looking at projects that are building towards this target. And, you know, we think there's gonna be great opportunity, especially here 
in Southern California, you know, for the next five to seven years. That's awesome. So then like, do you guys have to have special display show rooms or something like this where people can come and like, feel like they're getting in the experience and what they're going to get? Or do you guys create that more virtually? Um, at first virtually through like 3d tours, but then through the building of the model unit, right? It's, it's one thing to tell somebody about it. It's another thing to actual walk them through a unit and they say, Oh, I could live here. And uh, it just, it really brings it home once, once they're actually in that and they're like, oh, I could live here and this would be, you know, comparable to my rent payment or just slightly more. It, it, you know, especially on that entry level price point, it, it becomes a no brainer for people. Nice. That's awesome. So I'm going to, I'm going to talk about some of the dark stuff that's happening right now, because I'm curious as like how you guys are handling it. So, um, you know, the fed, is like printing money, like it's going out of fashion with quantitative easing, um, where we're experiencing the after effects of COVID and the lockdowns and like small businesses being affected and like high unemployment and, um, you know, small businesses and, and people have been heavily affected. Um, I think we still got a, a big crash yet to come. Um, how are you guys in, entwining all of these things into your business model so that you can sort of get through all of this? Um, it's a great question. Some of it is like hard to answer because it, we're, we're midstream, right? Um, you know, COVID has started to affect things like you, they create delays, it's tougher with crews. So that definitely has created challenges. I think for us is like getting into that problem solving aspect of like, how do, how do we overcome this? Right? Like, like, Real estate investing is like, like other things in business, right? Hey, here's the challenge. Here's the obstacle. How are we going to overcome that? How are we going to, you know, if we need additional capital, how are we going to solve that one? Um, and Dave and I have worked really hard on our current project where we're building 37 single family houses, right? To come about and finding solutions and figuring out how to, you know, uh, source other debt and, and just be creative in that process in order to keep everything moving forward. So I think it's been more like, just real time problem solving. Mm -hmm. And I think the biggest thing people get in trouble with is that they realize the world changed and you can't just go hide, right? You have to show up and say the world changed. Now, what are we going to do about it? What are our solutions? What are our solutions? What are the possibilities? And it's been cool to see as we, you know, as there have been challenges, like just coming together, you know, Dave brought certain resources to the table. I brought certain resources to the table and those have helped us to just keep, keep moving and keep getting, you know, to the point where we're closing escrows. Once you're closing escrows, you're bringing cash back in all that's very positive. So I think it's, it's really about just like not, not hiding and just showing up to solve problems. Yeah. And, yeah. and honestly, Bryce, some of that dark stuff you're talking about has actually benefited our, 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 our project, right? All mm -hmm. that quantitative easing means interest rates are super low. Yeah. We have, we have one of the buyers that we're dealing with right now that's upset that he's only getting a 3.65 interest rate because he wants something, you know, sub three. And it's like, you have no idea how low 3.6 is, but like that interest rate being so low and we don't anticipate those rates going anywhere in the next few years based no. on you know, what the Fed's saying. And, and just as we kind of, you know, pull ourselves out of this, I, I think some of those types of things are, again, I think the residential space isn't going to have the same kind of impact in the next couple of years. And Bryce, I believe with you, I don't think we've seen the worst of this thing. I don't even think we've seen nearly anywhere near mm. on how this thing is going to, um, you know, how COVID is going to affect 
our economy, I think until next year, after the election's over, you know, once we have a cure, I think once all that stuff happens, there'll be the political will to not print more money and do all of this, you know, all of this extra stimulus. And once that goes away, then the reality of high unemployment is going to start to take effect. The reality of, of people no longer wanting to work in offices as much as they were before. The reality of people not wanting to go into retail centers as much anymore because they developed this great new habit called Amazon where someone brings all their groceries to their front porch, right? That yeah. there are certain deficiencies, I think, as a society that we're all finding because of COVID that eventually is going to take root later on next year and the next couple of years as that resets. But from our, what we're building is mostly single family. Rates are probably going to be low. And to your point about Harry Dent, right? You've got the buyers and the dyers. Well, those people will still covet home ownership. And if rates are low and we're building a super cool product and they want to buy, we still think there'll be demand for the stuff that we're doing. Yeah. And people still need houses, huh? And I know, I think the reports were in June, in June, 30% of Americans didn't pay their mortgage or they missed their mortgage in July. It was 32%. We don't have the numbers yet for August, but we can assume that the uh, foreclosure process could begin for some people uh, in September. That could be the first round of the beginning of the foreclosure process, which probably won't go through till the beginning of next year. And then with the forbearance being drawn out over 12 months, probably this, that time next next year um, or like the end of next year, we might see the second round. So there's going to be a lot of people that are going to be, you know, evicted or foreclosed on and they're going to be out of homes, but they're going to need somewhere to go. It's not like everybody's going to be on the streets. Do you guys feel like you're contributing to kind of help solve that problem, especially in LA where affordability is um, probably questionably a bit of a challenge for some people? Sure. Well, there's definitely this, um, demand and supply imbalance in LA. And having been involved, I can understand why, right? Because it's, it's difficult to build. Uh, even though there's been more initiatives to try to make it easier or to, to ease that, you understand how difficult it is. And so that limits supply, right? So we do feel really good that we're bringing supply on, on board and that a lot of it's very entry level, um, more affordable, allows people to buy a house for the first time. The other thing we like about when we build to sell if we ever end up in a situation where we can't sell, we can always rent, right? So we, you know, we intentionally have multiple exits there that if we need to rent a house for a year or two years till the market comes back or until people can get financing, that, that's a good thing. But yeah, there is definitely, like if you look at the graph of demand for housing and the, and the available new supply or even the available supply in LA, it's, it's largely out of balance. And until then, mm. Until that settles out, we're going to see continued rent appreciation and price appreciation. Mm -hmm. So do you guys like accommodating in the styles of accommodation that you're putting out there? Um, like let's, let's say you had to rent, would you be renting the whole place or would you be renting bedrooms? Um, or, or are you open to sort of like a, a whole cross mix possibility of all of that? Yes. Right. I think that's that's the cool thing is that when you do have housing, we you know, we've talked about both of those models. We've talked about renting the whole house. We've talked about looking at more like a co-op space or, you know, kind of, um, you know, some kind of shared living type of environment. We've talked about short term rentals. Right. Like we, we think that there's to Brian's point, there's still a, there will still be a need for housing. You know, it, all these things that happen in the economy 
you know, people might get reshuffled because of evictions and foreclosures, but they still need a place to live. And there's only so much doubling up people can do. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, ha having housing here, we feel like gives us, you know, control of um, somehow monetizing the investment, even if for some reason sales start to start to stagnate. Um, but, um, you know, I, I also say that, you know, we've been planning for this for a few years, Yeah. right? Like, yep. like the, the, the deals that we are doing right now, when we were underwriting these deals a couple of years ago, you know, and this is probably some of the value that Brian and I bring, right? You know, we've got, we're experienced as investors and, and beyond helping some of these developers raise capital, which I think it's important to say that Brian and I as developers we're not contractors, right? We're not responsible mm. for the day-to-day -day work of building these projects. We kind of exist at a higher level uh, within the development structure where, you know, even the way we underwrote these deals years ago, we were already cutting prices based on where we thought prices were. There, there was additional revenue that we were stripping off the pro forma because we knew there might be a price correction in the future for us. So, you know, we've already been planning for this over the last couple of years. And as we're looking at future deals, you know, Bryce, to your point, we still think that there is trouble ahead. We're not through the worst of this yet. So we're still trying to be super conservative and how the underwriting goes. And then through the process of, of getting these things out of the ground, you know, over the years of being successful investors, Brian and I have developed a lot of skills as well as a lot of relationships. And, you know, we, we've been, you know, kind of our development, you know, our, our partner to our develop, developer partners and helping them be problem solvers, right? We've had some really unique problems that COVID has created. And mm. even before COVID, it was tariffs, right? Like all these different yeah. things that happened that, you know, we've been able to kind of step in and, and, you know, be good partners, which we think overall makes the investment a better investment for our investors. That's awesome. And, and you were saying just there that you were planning for these kinds of things. And, and I'm assuming what you're saying there is you were planning for some kind of economical crash, which is something that the all three of us were anticipating at some point, and probably it was going to happen this year. We didn't know that COVID was going to be the pin that popped the bubble, but we knew something was coming, right? And so oh. this, this, this has been in the works of the way that you guys have been planning all of this for like years, right? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me, right? Like yeah. it, it, it crept up on me last time because we didn't mm -hmm. have the, the knowledge base that we have now. This time, yeah, you're right. We've known it's been coming in our world and our circles. We've been talking about this for three to four years now. So yeah, I, I think, you know, even and beyond pricing the exits, I think to Brian's point, we, we've been, you know, kind of, I don't want to say demanding, but encouraging the developers to put together multiple exits, right? One being, mm -hmm. what if we can't sell it and we have to mm -hmm. hold it? What does that look like? So before we, you know, kind of, you know, helped wrangle up all this capital and, and, and you know, and, and help invest into these different projects, I think we've been trying to make sure that the underwriting was solid, even with a recession, you know, at the time, I think, you know, on the horizon versus now, I think we're probably here. We're just not seeing the worst of it yet. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, I think that's true for any kind of investment that you would go into at this point. Like you need to be planning. Like if, if you're looking at a performer and people are saying like, yeah, it's 95% occupied and it's going to be 98, 99 for the next 10 years, you know, maybe not. Right. So you have to be prepared for the maybe not. Right. Mm -hmm. You, you think, oh, we're projecting 5% rent growth over the next 10 years. Well, maybe. 
but maybe not. What if that doesn't happen, right? So the world changes. So all that to say is you have to go in with your eyes wide open and you have to make sure your partner, if you're, if you're getting into a passive investment, is planning for those kind of situations, those kind of circumstances, and to say, does the deal hold up if rents drop by 20%, if vacancy drops by 20%? Um, so a lot of that is looking at you know, the overall numbers and your partner and, lo and really looking and saying like, how much to the downside are, are, is this prepared for? And stress testing it to a point of, you know, how much economic headwinds can this take on and still do okay? Because, mm -hmm. you know, an investment can look really safe and really solid and it's already rented and, you know, but it's like, what is, what is that projecting out, right? What if you can't yeah. refinance in year three when you're saying, oh, we're just going to refinance in year three, everybody's going to get their money back. Well, the world changes, right? So you can't depend on those things. So you have to always be prepared for the, the what ifs and what if the world does change. They're serious questions. They're like mega serious questions, things we've got to be thinking about for sure. Um, I, I'm curious on what your guys' thoughts is of this. So we're seeing that some sectors are getting hit harder than others. Retail is getting hit pretty hard. Um, on the commercial side, I think industrial probably might do pretty well. Um, but then there's some other commercial areas that might be failing. Office, right? Um, have you guys like explored the possibility, or, or what do you think about the possibility of turning some of those types of buildings that used to have a different use into maybe some kind of affordable housing or more affordable housing? I mean, LA is a pretty freaking groovy place. I'm sure there's like endless possibilities with that. I mean, do you think that there's a bit of a future there? I think it depends on opportunity. I've heard about people even sourcing you know, kind of abandoned malls and can you turn that into a multifamily, right? What else can you do with that space? If you have, you know, all that kind of developed space, is there other creative uses you could do for that? And I think it is a really time to be creative, right? Um, if retail changes and it has changed, it's going to continue to change. You know, once you have this like multi-million dollar asset that's no longer ha has demand maybe from Sears or Kmart, like who else would have demand for that space? Or even I've heard of, of Amazon turning those into like like storage fulfillment centers, right? Well, it's a lot of, it's a lot of um, square footage, right? If they can get a great deal on it, it's cheaper than building it. Maybe it's cheaper than other industrial. And how realistic do you think that is for the city of LA to jump on board and, and help sort of rezone where needed? Do you, do you see that being more of a challenge or, or do you think that they, they'd probably be more on board? I think it's more of a challenge and that's the issue with our city, which is why we are undersupplied is building the city is so hard, mm. you know, and it's not just Southern California. It's just, you know, California in general, you know, we, we've got so many different rules and regulations on, on what you can do and on zoning changes. So I, I think it's going to be difficult. Um, but, you know, I, I think that's where desperation sometimes leads to innovation. Mm. And I do, yeah. I do, think that as time goes on, and again, the impact of this really starts to kind of hit landlords and, and hit, you know, owners of different properties and, and cities now are looking at these huge vacancies that maybe they will become a little more um, creative in, in how they try to repurpose certain things. Um, but I, I don't, I don't see that happening in the immediate future. I, I think that's down the line. Yeah, they probably got to feel the pain point first before they're actually going to do something. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I'm hearing you. So um, the, there's a movement happening right now called the Great Migration, where you know some people are moving out of cities and they're going to more rural areas. Um, the media sort of has one play on it. Sounds like you guys are experiencing a different play on it. You know, the media is kind of saying all of the wealthy people are leaving the major cities. Uh, the governor of New York is like begging, begging people to come back from the Hamptons. And he's even saying, hey, I'll cook your barbecue and you can come around my place for a drink. Um, bit comical, but also like he's obviously a little bit concerned there. Um, and then there's a few things that go with that. Like, uh, is there that many people really leaving from LA? Um, and then you were talking about this before, Dave, and you're saying, well, sure, like some people are leaving, but then there's also like tons of people coming in too. And people aren't talking about that. Um, what's your mix on, on that, on the whole great migration and how that's actually affecting the LA area? I think it's a little early to tell. Oh, but I, I will. I, I've got some some like real world data on. I shouldn't say data, but but um. So we've got a really good friend of ours who is an agent in downtown LA. Downtown mm -hmm. LA is exactly what you're talking about, Bryce. It's becoming a ghost town, and the reason why is people that bought in downtown LA they bought because of all the restaurants. They bought because mm -hmm. of all the nightlife. They wanted to be near Staples and baseball games, and all of a sudden, it's a ghost town in downtown LA. No one's working in the office. And because no one's working in the office, all the restaurants are shutting down. So all the people that are, that were buying in downtown LA, um, that demand has gone away and people that are living there want to get out. Now, what that means for us in Southern California is you just go 10 miles North <laughs> into a neighborhood and all of a sudden there's de the demand for there is starting to rise. So mm -hmm. I think to your point, it's not that people are leaving Los Angeles and wanting to move to Bakersfield. I think yeah. it's more that people are leaving downtown LA and want to move to the Valley. So and That's I think the same thing's happening point. in New York, right? Like, you know, downtown New York. Yeah. I've heard the same kind of things, but you know, they just might be moving to Westchester in Connecticut. Right. But they're not going to leave the New York hmm. Metro. They're just kind of repositioning inside the city. That's interesting. So it's more, and cause they're not saying that in the media, but you're saying it's more applying to like downtown. And so like downtown LA, geographically pretty small location la is massive it can take like an hour it's going to take an hour and a half to drive from one side of la to the other tons of tons of towns and cities inside la okay so you're you you think that the downtown area is getting hit um because they're talking on the news about in the media about all the wealthy people leaving and then the fact that there's you know the people that can't afford to leave are being are staying there and i know that there's been like the whole tent city thing and, and stuff like that in la do you think downtown la could potentially turn into a bit of a cesspool um with, with that kind of activity i mean it, it, L, downtown la was a cesspool like you know 15 <laughs> 20 years ago and they've done mm -hmm. such a great job of cleaning it up but yeah, I mean, that, that, I think that'll be something interesting to watch. And, and again, from what I'm hearing right now on the ground, big, big investment projects, like hundreds and hundreds of units that are coming online are just stalling and no one wants yeah. to buy it. And, and, you know, because there's no life, right? People yeah. want to move downtown because they want the energy. They like having people coming in and out and no one's going into downtown. No one's working from downtown. No one's playing in downtown downtown has just become a ghost town. So and usually when that happens, you know, that I, I just saw, um, I just saw something on Skid Row, uh, actually on uh, uh, W. Kamal Bell. I, I love his show, by the way. And okay. he did an episode this past weekend on Skid Row. And, 
you know, like Skid Row has like 15,000 people that live in downtown. It, it's a, it's a large community bigger wow. than cities, you know, across, you know, across our country. Wow. Um, and unfortunately as prices go up, it does create more homelessness. And, and I, I do see that that could be happening in downtown LA where maybe they had turned the corner and starting to reverse some of those trends and it could be unfortunately turned back. Wow. That's wild. 15,000, man. That's a, that's a big number. So what sub markets are you guys focusing on? Cause LA that's like a very broad area. It's massive. You can so many cities in LA. Um, what, what specific areas are you guys focusing on and why? Well, we do like um, cities like North Hollywood. We're in Panorama mm -hmm. City. We're in Silver Lake. We're in Hollywood. That is primarily driven because those cities are a little easier to navigate through the building process and, and building codes mm -hmm. and building inspectors. There's mm -hmm. other cities like Glendale, Burbank that kind of have their own and they can be even more difficult. So, mm -hmm. and, and also sometimes a little more unknown. So trying to find cities that are a little more building friendly. Um, also where the residents, there's a thing we call NIMBY, not in my neighborhood, like everybody, we need more housing, we need more housing, oh, go, but, not, but not near me, right? I don't yeah. want my traffic to go up. So there's a lot of that. Um, so just picking cities that are favorable, I'm actually involved with a multifamily kind of buy and hold project that uh, right now down in Long Beach. And the reason for that play is because the rents are lower, you know, like, Average LA rents might be eighteen, nineteen hundred dollars, and down there they're twelve hundred, thirteen hundred dollars. So we see that as like, hey, there's going to be migration there. People are smart. They're like, hey, I'm willing to go to Long Beach if I can save four or five hundred dollars a month, right? And so eventually those rents will come up higher as there's more demand for that. Um, so I think just looking, being aware of the city. Uh, again, Long Beach is very pro building right now, and mm -hmm. as a result. A lot of building, a lot of development, more people coming in. It's helping the whole city. Those, that's going to that's gonna make those investments turn out to be really good. I think to answer your previous question, I mean, it's still a little early to say, is there really a trend happening, right? I think there is people that are saying like, hey, we're getting out of cities or like, obviously, if you lived in Seattle right now, you probably and run, ran a business. I, I hear stories about all the businesses leaving. I'm not surprised. It makes sense. Um, but whether that will really be a trend, a trend, or if this is just a little blip, I think that's the that's the real unknown to say. Like, is are we really on a start of a trend, or is this just a kind of a short blip that will kind of reverse itself and go back to the normal pretty quickly? Mm -hmm. Yeah, time will tell. So you were touching on this a little bit earlier, Dave, and you were talking about, because this is a lot of talk about, you know, global warming and um, all these different environmental things. And, you know, we're, we're seeing more natural disasters and, you know, some people could explain it scientifically. You can even explain it astrologically. Um, there's a lot of different, you know, there's mixed feelings about it all, but nonetheless, something that we need to take into consideration. Um, you guys are sort of leaning towards uh, some green economic things in your accommodations um what are you guys doing there well again I, I think first of all part part of us delivering a lot of green technology into our developments is because of california rules i mean i think california leads the nation and you know probably some uh environmental uh, legislation and, and requirements uh you know now in uh moving forward anything that gets permitted in, in the city of la or maybe the state of california has to have solar panels on it moving forward, right? Like that has, that's, to. Uh, has to, 
right? Wow. Not, not be pre-wired, not, not be, you know, like literally has to have the panels on top of it. Hmm. Um, so I, I think that, you know, again, we, we've got electric cars, um, you know, are, are becoming super big in Los Angeles. So a lot of the units that we're building, we're pre-wiring, pre-wiring for electric car chargers, right? So if someone does mm. have an electric car, they don't have to move in and then, then hire an electrician to come in and run the 220. They can just plug in their charger and plug in their car. Um, you know, things like using LED, you know, th things like, um, you know, trying to keep the, um, you know, I guess the, 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 the carbon footprint of living in the home down. We think it's important as people and investors and more importantly for us, our buyers really covet that kind of, um, you know, ha having that kind of technology in the home. Um, you know, we're putting tankless water heaters in versus regular water heaters. That's mm. something that's, that's standard, right? Because that, that also, um, you know, uses gas versus ele electricity, which is way more efficient. Yeah. Um, you, know, um, you know, even air, right? That's one of the things for us is air quality. And, and one of the projects that we're involved in right now you know, one of the things that the, the builder put in standard is these filters that HEPA air filters that help clean the air um, out. And that's one of the things that when we're selling it to our buyers, not only the fact that it is green and good for the environment, even in their little mini environment, which is their home, we care about the air that they breathe, right? So caring about the buyers and, and building a product that we think is relevant to them is one of those things that even if there is a recession and even if there is a decrease in, in, in residential, which there probably will be, there will still be people buying homes. And we just want yeah. to make sure that they're going to buy ours because we're, we're trying to keep uh, as an investment group, the deals that we're invested in, we want to make sure that the builders are staying hyper-focused on building for that, that very specific target. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Um, that I didn't know that about the uh, solar panels. That's interesting. Yeah, they, they did this thing in Australia where <clears throat> we had a lot of droughts. And um, so they started making people, when you build a house, you have to have a thousand liter water tank with the house for like reserve waters. Uh, what That's like 250 gallons or something like that. And it kind of like taps into your gutters from your house and boom, 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 comes in. Uh, are they doing anything like that in California? Yeah, we, we've got these huge cisterns on all of our projects. I think that's, uh, I don't know if it's mandatory, Brian, but I, I know we have them on ours. That um, is cool. We have to capture rainwater into these cisterns and store it. So from an irrigation standpoint, the first thing we'll do is we'll use that recaptured rainwater before we start using the city's water. So yeah, there, there's absolutely things like that that are going into it. And again, California, I think, kind of leads the nation. And that's also what makes California, you know, in these kinds of... Um, uh, I'll say requirements for new construction, which is also what makes building in Southern California so difficult, right? There are all these different, you know, hoops that you have to jump through and different hurdles that you have to clear and, and, and different things you have to build into the project, which, you know, is why we have a lack of housing, which is also why our prices keep going up. So I don't know what the magic bullet is on that, you know, from a societal standpoint, but, you know, what I do know is that there is an imbalance in uh, demand versus uh, supply. And, you know, we think helping to create supply, um, even if things get worse from here on out, will still be a great place to invest. Yeah. So, so you guys, I mean, 
I've got to ask, like, are you, like stock market, do you think it's a good time to invest in the stock market? I've done uh, phenomenal. It's like, it's, it's, um, it's the thing is the, the hot area, right? So, I mean, I've had stocks go up to 250%, 300%, 400%, right? And that's just unprecedented, right? And I'm thinking, wow, I want my real estate money. And so I, I'd rather have it in the market right now. But there's, there's going to be a day, I'm not sure if it'll be in the next month or the next six months or, you know, but there's a very strong possibility that it could be 30, 40, 50% down across the board, right? Mm. So it's another reason why I like to be involved with multiple sectors, right? So I look at uh, like the development of new construction as like the ultimate value add, right? Most people do a value add where they're, in, you know, improving the floors and putting in granite and improving it. But we're basically taking either a beat up piece of crap or a, a dirt lot, right? That you buy for 500 grand, like just say on a six unit process, this is sort of like the, you buy a lot for 500 grand, you do a million dollars of improvements. So you build six brand new units on there. It's worth two and a half million. So you just created a million dollars of the value by building those, those six units. So to me, that's, that's a great strategy and a great plan to, to create value, right? How do you create value out of thin air? And that's more certain than, yeah, I could buy a stock and it could do great. Um, but it also could, you know, you can wake up in the morning and it can be down 30%, right? Um, yeah. And so, unless you bought those stocks like years and years ago at the bottom, then, you know, you have to kind of ride it out or lose money. Right. And I think that's where I think a lot of people end up chasing it, right? Like, oh, mm. I just heard that, you know, like I, I, I told Dave, Zoom was up 40% in one day, right? Yeah. Yesterday, right? Yeah. And okay. So yeah, it's kind of changing the world. So I can kind of understand that. But um, you, it's the people that come late to the party are the, always the people that get hurt, right? Like, like 10 years ago, my parents called me and they're like, I think we should buy some gold. I think we should buy, I keep hearing it on the news and everybody in my groups are talking about it. My friends are talking about it, right? It's too sort late. of like, yeah, exactly, too late, exactly. So you, that's why you want to be diversified. You also want to be like not chasing the hot, hot thing. I'm, I had people come to parties at my house in 2007 and they had no experience, but they're like, I just, I just bought two rentals, you know, yeah. in Missouri. Right. And more than likely they don't own those two <laughs> units today. Right. So yeah. it's, it's careful not to chase the trend to, to look at where you can actually create value with more certainty than right now the market. I mean, it's tough because it's been so amazing and partly it's been so amazing because we're printing dollars. And so partly I think it's more, kind of like is gold really going up in value or are you just needing more and more dollars to buy that same gold maybe gold yeah. same value but because dollars are becoming more worthless right but in general all that money printing tends to favor hard assets which is totally. good I like i like being involved with owning physical real estate with real estate that's tied to to rents coming in because even if things do like inflate right that by owning hard assets, it allows you to participate in that upside. I'm totally with you on that one, mate. I'm all about tangible assets. And um, <clears throat> on that note, you know, Warren Buffett actually has a saying that's uh, only dead fish go with the flow. So like if everybody else is doing it, then, you know, it's too late. And uh, that's what I liked what you guys are doing with this millennial housing. It's not something that everybody's doing. And you guys are on the cutting edge of like technology and keeping up to the pace and, and, and you sort of like going with the flow and negotiating your way through COVID and the economy. I think that's awesome. And you were talking about Brian, about being, 
being diversified. And in your introduction, I mentioned that you have over 60 uh, streams of income. And I know Warren Buffett, a lot of people think, oh, Warren Buffett's like wealthy because he's smart. He's a wise investor. And although that may be true, Warren Buffett is, is wealthy because he's got like thousands of streams of income. So if this thing fails and this thing's not paying him, all these other things are paying him. So can you just touch a little bit quickly on what some of your main streams of income are and like why you chose them? Sure. So started with the single family streams, right? Because that's what I knew. That's what I read about. I still love, love those streams. People sometimes talk down about those streams, but those streams have done really well for my family. And rather than selling and liquidating those, I just do cash out refinances, which allow me to pull capital out of those. I'll, t I'll give you a quick example. Again, it, this is hard to replicate because of the time, but um, in 2009, 2010, there were houses that were at one time 400 grand. They went down in value to 100 grand. So you're buying for 25 cents on the dollar. To buy a 100 grand asset, you have to put 20 grand down, okay? So you have a $20,000 of skin in that game. Well, that, when that $100,000 house that's now worth 300,000, you've gone up 200K on a 20K investment, right? So you only put 20 down, but you made 200, right? Mm -hmm. So that's like a thousand percent rate of returns. So that's the power of using leverage in an appreciating real estate market. So, you know, so that really worked well. And then the, the chance that you can actually pull that capital out and then go buy other assets. So then from that, I bought, bought um, self-storage uh, into self-storage funds um, or sometimes single self-storage um, buildings, again, with partners, um, multifamily units, mobile home parks, um, all kinds of different inv investments, some, some retail, I mean, three retail deals in Houston. Um, and, you know, by being, I guess, aware of even the trends early on as we were going into those of trying to find businesses that were not basically under threat of Amazon, right? Mm -hmm. Like okay. the haircutting place, it's going to probably be there. The, the pizza place and the party for the kids, probably going to be there. The mm -hmm. School of Rock franchise, you know, it's hard to do that one online, right? So mm -hmm. um, again, thinking about those, but again, those, those kind of streams. And then from there, like um, other apartment buildings, finding other partners to go in and, and buy apartment buildings with, with partners. Um, and then these, uh, all these development projects now that I'm involved with. So, but a lot of that came from like what Dave was talking about, going to Phoebe meetings, going to real estate clubs, meeting people, networking. From that, I met Dave. From Dave introduced me to other people, so it's just it's just a constant um, kind of keep improving, keep getting smarter, keep learning along the way. Yeah, like keeping your eye on the ball too, because it doesn't all happen at once. Like you didn't go out straight out of the gate, going, "Hey, man, my goal is to get like sixty streams of income straight out of the gate." Like I'm assuming you focused on like one thing in the beginning. I know I did. I focused just laser focused on mobile home parks, and then, and then once I had that nailed, then I you know ventured out into multifamily apartments and automatic telemachine funds and precious metals and cannabis investments and and all these sorts of things. But kind of like stacking on over time, and they all sort of play play off each other you know when these ones are going hot these ones are you know maybe not so hot and it's, it's a pretty cool position to be in when you've got over 60 streams of income i mean you've got that's a, a, got to play a huge role in you being comfortable and feeling like you're free yeah yeah it's wonderful and again to kind of follow up on that i bought single family 2009 to 2012 mm -hmm. right because it was on massive sale. It was the best place that I knew to put my dollars at that time. 
right? But then from 2012 to here we are 2020, other than some flips, I haven't bought any single family, right? So then it's kind of about like a following the opportunity. And now when I met some of these development partners and, and I could see the returns that we were getting from there, so I've deployed heavily into that field. So it's kind of like chase, chasing the cycle, but trying to be early in that, right? Um, you know, like, like you talk about precious metals. Well, the, the time to get precious metals is when it's kind of been out of favor and it's starting to turn, right? Mm -hmm. And then if there's some, some events or some economic chaos, it's going to drive that and push that up. Uh, that can end up being a wonderful investment. But again, being a little bit contrarian, um, thinking about like not necessarily, it's like skating to where the puck is going to be instead of where it is, right? Yeah. And, and definitely where everybody else is surrounded by the puck and saying, it's right here, it's right here. It's, it's probably not there, right? It's probably late to the party. So thinking about, hey, in two years, where are we going to be at? Or in five years, where are we going to be at? Yeah. Yeah. And taking yeah. advantage of those wealth cycles from asset class to asset class. That's, that's something I'm heavily focusing on right now. So I'm going to get a little bit vulnerable with you guys here. I'll ask you guys to get a little bit, a little bit vulnerable with me. I'm going to hit you up, Dave. Um, what's the biggest fuck up that's happened for you as an investor? Um. Uh, scaling my fix and flip business in 2009 or 2008 was, was, was something where, again, we, we didn't really, we didn't really understand real estate at a, um, at a macro level. We were very focused on the individual house. So, you know, when, when we started having some success as fixing and flippers and started getting into bigger deals, we did it at the absolute wrong time to Brian's point, like, you know, timing the market, you know, if, if, if in real estate, they say, you know, buying a house, location, location, location is all that really matters in investing. It's timing, 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 right? N knowing mm. where you are in the life cycle of that particular asset class is, um, is super important. And we didn't, we, 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 we didn't have good timing when we first got started. So um, I, I would say, you know, um, the other part of that is we didn't have multiple exits, Right. So that's another thing that I've learned and, and some mistakes that we've made is early on, the first set of numbers look good and we were okay with that. We went with it versus now I think we've learned, okay, well, that's, that's a great scenario if it happens, but what if this, this, and this happens, how would it perform? And, you know, we certainly did some deals early on where we didn't have that kind of insight and it, and it came back to bite us. Lessons learned. Absolutely. That's awesome. How about you, Brian? Well, um, I think one of the main ones was like um, over trusting people that don't have a, a super strong long track record. Mm -hmm. And in that, oftentimes they were like, hey, I, I need a, a loan for three months, right? And, and by, by making it a shorter term, right? You, you minimize, or at least I did in my mind, minimize the risk factor. Oh, it's only three months. It's only a one month loan, right? It's like, I'm gonna get this back soon so there's less risk, right? Well. Some of those I'm still waiting to get repaid on, right? Some of the, some of those guys, I'm uh, I'm learning the the bankruptcy system, right? I've, I've, they've filed bankruptcy and trying to figure out how to, you know, how do you get your cash from people? But I would say the learning lessons of that is like doing a deep dive on no matter if it's ten grand or if it's a hundred grand, doing a deep dive because, like, honorable people tend to have an honorable track record and. Um, I guess people that that skate and um, are a little bit shystery, they also have a track record. So mm -hmm. if you go back and, you know, as I was doing deep dives into trying to go in more into collection mode, it's like one guy, it's like I discovered 
you know, again, it was like a lot of these deals were like, we, you know, we need money in two weeks and about, so the time pressure and the due diligence gets compromised because of the time pressure mm -hmm. that they're putting on. Mm -hmm. And so learning to just say no to those, it's like, I don't have enough time to really fully research this deal. Yeah. Cause in doing some of that research, one guy, he was sued by two different women for child support. Right. Yeah. So it's like, if a guy's not paying for his kids, what's the likelihood he's going to step up to the plate and do the honorable thing with you? Yeah. Probably pretty yeah. low. And yeah, and I'm sure you learned from that, that like guys that do that or girls that do that, it's not sustainable. Like, you know, you leave a trail behind you and you, you'll end up like, just it's, I don't know why people do it because at the end of the day, it's not going to work out. You might get along with it away with it for a short term, but, um, Definitely yeah, I mean, one, one of those guys may end up in jail, right? The SEC has come after him because, you know, he defrauded. He had a whole uh, marijuana investment and yeah. um, he basically took in like four and a half million dollars of capital and didn't really have a sustainable business behind it. And, uh, mm. you know, um, it's just like, like you said, like it leaves clues, though. Like what's their past track record? What have past investors said about them? Like. How, how have they exited and what have they done the honorable thing even when it gets to, you know, the rubber meets the road. There are operators that will reach into their own pocket or their side of the profits and make investors or bring investors whole or more in line with what they promised them. And there's other guys who like, man, too bad, you know, screw you. So you, you learn a lot about the integrity of the people that you're involved with and that matters more than anything. And I think now in your position where you guys are at, Brian and Dave, um, and I know this about you guys specifically, you're probably glad that things like that have happened because I know that you guys specifically have a really, really high criteria for, you know, operators and building partners. So do you guys want to just quickly walk through how you select operators and building partners? Yeah, I'll, I'll and I want to just kind of piggyback a little bit what Brian was talking about, you know, in, in that last conversation. If you haven't lost money in real estate, you haven't been investing long enough, um, it's going to happen, right? It's just, it's just the deal flow. It's it just period in investing, forget about real estate, right? All invest, all investing has risk. And it's one of the reasons why I think you want to be diversified as an investor is that you are going to suffer some losses here and there. And hopefully when that happens, you're learning lessons and you don't make those same mistakes again, but don't be, you know, somewhat debilitated by the idea of not investing because you might lose money. That's going to happen no matter how you invest. And uh, it's just part of the game, right? So you just have to learn to be resourceful and work your way out of that. Um, I'd say and over the long haul, it's a very small percentile though as well, you know? Sure, yeah. everyone has losses, but like 98% wins, you know? Yeah, exactly right. That's what you want to do is you want to win more than you lose, right? So, and, and in the long term, that will, that will pay off. Um, you know, I would say, you know, some of the things that, um, you know, we've really done with the people that we've been investing is, first of all, you know, we want to get to know them personally, right? We want to get to know them. We want to understand their family situation, right? We want to kind of, um, you know, really get a sense of what kinds of people they are. Um, and, you know, in the, in the typical trust but verify mode, beyond just getting to know them, we want to look at their projects. We want to talk to different investors, um, other investors that have invested in their products, it's not just how well they've performed. I think it's also important to understand how well they communicate, right? Because a deal that's going bad that they're letting you know along the way what's happening is completely different than if they're not letting you know what's going on. And all of a sudden at the end of the mm. deal, there's this big moment where you realize, holy cow, I wish you would have told us that this was happening or these troubles were, were happening. So we could have either A, prepared for that or B, 
maybe there was something we could have done to help in the situation. Uh, I think it's natural yeah. for, for, for operators to write, you know, they want to take on everything and solve everything all on their own. And sometimes they don't have all the resources that they really need to find the, the best solution. They just find a solution. So mm -hmm. I think it's important that, you know, we, we are looking for people that, um, you know, um, you know, again, we want to talk to previous investors. Brian mentioned about, you know, success and failure lead, lead clues either way. Right. Yeah. So running background checks on people. Um, mm -hmm. We actually have a call tomorrow with a uh, one of our operating partners who's um, decided to hire a new contractor. Right. So it's one of the things that we want to do is um, we really want to get to know who the new contractor is, who the players are, what's their experience level, you know, how, how what kind of people are they? And, um, you know, I, I think for us, it's just a matter of trying to have an intimate level of understanding of all the different pieces that it takes to, to make a deal successful. Um, and, you know, before we send it out and put it out underneath, you know, our brand and, and put our names on it, we want to be confident that, you know, all the people that are involved are, um, you know, are going to perform and do what they say they're going to do. Yeah, because that's your reputation on the line too. And that's super important. And, and I always tell my investors, it's like you need to put like less than 50% of your due diligence on the actual asset itself. I mean, sure, the asset needs to work, the market needs to work, it all needs to work, but you need to put more than 50% on the actual operators and the people that are going to see the business plan through. Because you can have like an, a shit hot investment and have a poor operator and it won't really perform that well. Or you can have like an average investment and a shit hot operator operator and they'll knock it out of the park. And so I always say that to investors and I think that's great about you guys because I know you vet really, really hard. And I know that you guys are saying no way more often than you're saying yes um, to, to business partners and to operators. And so I think that's great about you guys. And I take my hat off to you. Yeah, yep. I think it's also, and real quick, I'm proud you go, is that, you know, we, we don't do every deal from every operator we meet. And even the operators that we like, we don't do every deal that they have, right? Mm -hmm. Like we, we tend to try to cherry pick both the people and even within the people, the deals that they have and, and, and try to, you know, kind of nail the cream of the crop, so to speak. Yeah, just one more tip for your listeners on due diligence. I think it's really important. A lot of times an operator will say, hey, talk to my investors. And the investors, maybe they've gotten one or two distribution checks and they say, oh yeah, everything's good here, right? You don't really know until it's gone full cycle to everybody's got their capital back to yep. see what really happened. So again, it's why doing business with people who have a long track record versus people that are, you know, at the very early stage who don't really have a track record, um, why that's so critically important because it can, it can all sound good and it could even be going good, but you know, I've, people have come to me with investments, should I do this? And it's like, well, do you realize that this guy has never, you know, gone full cycle? He's never sold the property. This is his second deal. And his first one was only two months ago, right? Yeah. Um, that's not a lot of track record to, to trust somebody with 50, 100 grand, 200 grand. Um, you know, I, to me, that's pretty, I think Vegas might treat you just, to, just as well. Um, yeah. Because it is a gamble, as opposed to a guy that's like, been in the business, has generated millions and millions of dollars for his investors. That's, that's an easier, higher likelihood of success guy to, to bet on. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's great. Super important. So I'm going to shift gears here really quickly and then a couple more questions because I fully respect your time. Um, so what does the ultimate freedom lifestyle look like for you, Brian? Um, 
Well, we didn't touch on it earlier, but I, I sort of had that same corporate experience Dave did, um, except I was just like, I was in early years of college and I was working for this uh, horrible uh, car company, car rental company, um, doing the glamorous job of uh, washing cars and renting cars. Um, and our, our family went on a Christmas vacation. And they're like, no, you need to work. And so I missed out on this Christmas vacation with my family coming out, you know, and I got to wash cars. And at that point, I was like, I do not want this corporate life. I do not want someone else dictating, you know, and that was that was really an, a really early insight to like someone else could control your time, your vacations, what you yeah. get to do, say yes to and no to. So I would say that's a beautiful thing right now. You know, I'm a film composer, so I love that. Um, I'm in a position where I could give that up if I wanted to, but I love it. I love the challenge of it. I love how that business continues to change and grow, but just that, that creativity thing of like, you need to come up with something you're like, okay, here we go. Right. It's a, it's a big challenge and I, I love that challenge. Um, so I'm in that position where I could give that up, but right now sipping my ties isn't, isn't the highest thing on my list. Um, I love that. Um, we actually have a, like a family foundation where we, we give away money every year to, you know, like, um, we support an orphanage in the Philippines and help kids go to college who would never get to go to college. And, you know, being able to send a kid to college, uh, to me, that was one of the more rewarding experiences I've ever got to do in my life. And just, you know, I mean, more than buying a new car for myself or whatever, it was just like, wow, that's a a great way to spend money. So like making good decisions, um, you know, making sacrifices in the in the early years of your life to put yourself in a position where you can be be generous and uh, affect people, change the world. It's it's a beautiful thing. So it's it's for for me, I would say it's worth the sacrifices to get there. Love it. And it sounds like you are living the ultimate freedom lifestyle. You you have complete choice in in what you do. Well, I, I have a wife and three kids, so I wouldn't say total freedom and total choice, but uh, economically, we, we definitely have a lot of options, and, and that's a beautiful thing, but that doesn't dictate. I, I have some relatives who say money doesn't matter, and then uh, they say, oh, we're not going to go eat there. That's too expensive. We're not going to go there. It's too expensive. Oh, we can't go on that vacation. It's too expensive. So money is driving and affecting every decision they make, and it even though they say it's not that important, it, it's coming, it, it's affecting every piece of their life. So it's I not like the most money. important thing. It's not the most important thing at all, but it's pretty freaking important unless you live on Mars. Um, and we don't live on Mars. You need money for just about everything. So it is important for sure. And how about you, Dave? What's the ultimate freedom lifestyle for you, brother? What does that look like? Um, well, I, I, for me, the ultimate freedom lifestyle is, you know, I, I want to create opportunity for myself, but I also want to create opportunity for the people in my world, right? Like the, the, those that are, that are in my world. So my real estate company, right? It's not just about making money for me. It's about letting all the people on my team, creating opportunity for them as well so that they can start to, you know, create their own freedoms. Um, you know, I, I, We've talked a lot about leverage of money here. I think what's Mm -hmm. ultimately important also is leveraging of other people and leveraging Mm -hmm. their time. Yeah. Uh, You know, real estate is the ultimate team sport, right? There's no high in real estate. Um, You know, the the, the quality of investor you become, I think it will depend more on the quality of people you're involved with and the quality of deals you get um, exposed to. So, you know, I, I think that's important for me is, you know, creating an environment, um, you know, the freedom to have time to create 
these communities where I'm hopefully attracting good people and can leverage their knowledge and their expertise um, to create freedom for myself. Ultimately for us, like, you know, we talked about it, you know, we, we love our home. We also love spending time outside of our home. We love to travel. You know, we love bumping into, you know, into, into you know, good friends in Prague, Germany and mm-hmm. Prague, Czech and, and, and just, you know, spending time around the world. I mean, what I ultimately want to do is, you know, drop my car off at Brian's house, have him wash it and to get on the airplane and go somewhere <laughs> and see the world. That's a experience. Now, well, you're, it sounds like you're good at it, right? So I, I want to take advantage and leverage your, your expertise. Um, but yeah, we, we want to go out. There's still, you know, the more you see, the more you realize you haven't seen. And, you know, we still have a long list of places that we want to go. That's awesome. And I'm sure Brian's like, hey, man, my kids are washing that car, not me. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's beautiful. So you guys are both ultra successful. Do you guys have any daily rituals or weekly rituals that you swear by that you feel puts you in the, in peak performance or just like keeps you on track? Um, I've, I've started with friends, a couple of mastermind groups over the last couple of years. And not only just that, that group, but then also trying to leverage up the accountability of that. Like one of my things has been doing a hundred pushups uh, every day uh, nice. and I've almost, almost a year into that now. So, but then not just the commitment, but then it's like, Oh, if I, if I fail to like, let's just say we're going to meet again in two months. And in that time I'm supposed to get 1500 pushups in or whatever. So if, if I fail to do that, then I got to kick 200 bucks into the kitty. Right. Um, that's, and, and just learning ways to leverage that, like um, just to say like, okay, I, here's what I really want to do to keep that, I have an intention list, right? Here's what I'm intending. And this is like, okay, I want to take each of my kids on a special one-on-one date. I want to take my wife out mm-hmm. to dinner two times before the next time we get together. You know, I want to do so many push-ups and so many pull-ups. I want to, how many, how many sweaty workouts. I want to figure out like how to redeploy this capital in, in its highest thing. But keeping those things like front and center is really, really important because if not, like we've even had experience in the group where two months later, people are like, oh, their life isn't any different than it was two months earlier. And it's because we didn't really have like fully tracked, fully written down and fully accountable. And then if you don't, if you fail to meet your objective, what's going to happen, right? Because if there's no downside, and, and for many people, there is no downside, right? Like, I want to invest in real estate. Well, what's step one? Well, I don't really know. Uh, okay, save up 30 grand. Um, and then four years later, they still haven't saved up 30 grand. That's like step one, right? So just to realize, okay, what do I need to do for step one? Okay, well, maybe that means then I'm going to do, you know, I'm going to save like 500 bucks a month. Um, I'm going to create some other like side business that I can add another $800 a month to, you know, but, but setting those, um, I guess, goals and objectives, but then really following through and then creating some downside for yourself. If you don't meet those, it's okay to have some, some negative consequences of bad things happening to you. They're, they're not really bad, but just like, like even admitting to a bunch of guys like, Hey, like I wimped out on the pushups or whatever. It's enough. Yeah. Like, I don't want to have that conversation. So it's no like, kidding. okay, I got them in. Even if it, like some days you got to fit in 450 because you've been slacking over the course of time. So that's definitely been a great practice that's been helping me to not just set those objectives, but meet those objectives. 
And that's awesome. And that's true mates. Like a true mate holds his mate accountable. And it's like, that's awesome that you got a group because that would be enough for me. I'd just be going like, I, I know I only did like 50 of those push-ups. I was supposed to do like, you know, a couple of hundred or whatever. That would, that would bug me. And I wouldn't want to come to the group and say, hey man, like I pushed out on that one. So that, that would be enough right there for me. But it's great to have accountability. That's, I, that's awesome. How many of you guys are in that group? Um, the four in one group and three in another group. That's great. So- But I've I've been actually working on being even more intentional about Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, one of the things is like, how do you keep surrounding yourself with people that are even at a higher level that are playing the game at an even higher level than you? Yeah. And and so one of my goals is to is to create an environment where there's still benefit for them, but then also to try to include them or bring them in even as a guest speaker, try to surround yourself with people who are, you know, like it's easy to say, Oh, I'm, I'm crushing it. So it's good. But it's like, well, who else is, who else has been, been where I am and kept playing the game and what are those yeah. steps to keep going? It's funny. Like, you know, I talked to some people from, you know, like school back in the day or, and, you know, people back in Australia and they're like, Oh man, you're crushing it. And I'm like, well, y- yes. Um, but like, interestingly in my world, I'm like far from crushing it, you know? And that's, I think that's really powerful to, to have that. That's great. And, and how about you, Dave? Um, uh, daily, daily ha- rituals, things that keep uh, you going. I think that's funny because you said that it's like, I, I think that's super important is that you need to have big goals, right? And where, you know, pe- people see the success that you've done, but they may not know the path that you're on. And I, I kind of feel the same way. Yeah, we've accomplished a lot, but there's still so much more to accomplish. Uh, I also agree that you need to have not just, a, you know, we're actually, you know, now that it's here in September, September in, in my world is usually annual planning month, right? Because whatever's going to happen in January, if you don't start it by October, it's really not going to happen, right? Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things that I have on my list right now. And it's not just what do I want to do in 2021? It's what I want to do in 2025, right? Because 2021 is this is the is the year that's going to get me to 2025 so yeah you know having an annual planning um time frame in your world and that that is both in my business uh it's in my personal life like you know for for, for my wife and i you know we, we also have a goal where we want to be in 2025 and 2030 and you know we're we're, we're tracking it right and you know we hold each other accountable to that, to those goals, right? One of the things that I love about like partnering with Brian, right? We offer some accountability to each other, right? Because we have standing meetings that we're keeping and, you know, we, we, we try to keep each other on brand and on task along the way. Um, I really love working with people. I love building relationships. I think that's what I'm really good at. Um, and I don't ever want to do this on my own. I always want to have good people around me because I think, good people uh, keep each other accountable. And once you have all that big time goals and you certainly want to know what your why is, right? We talked about that earlier, what our whys are, that mm. has to translate into what am I going to do today? Yeah. Um, you know, one of the documents that, that I like to use, it's called, a, you know, it's called a 411, right? Okay. And, and it basically says, okay, look, what's the one thing that I want to do? And what are the four things that we're going to do to get there? And then what are the things that I need to do to accomplish those things, right? So it's taking a really big goal and breaking it out into larger tactics, which you can then break that out into smaller next steps that you need to take uh, and then tracking it, right? And, and really looking at it and, and you know, either you know, having someone in your world to help hold you accountable 
that's all very important. And that's all we need to know too, isn't it? If we know what our why is and what our end goal is, we just really need to know what the next step is. And then, and then the next step and the next step. Um, that's great. So uh, one last question here for you guys. Um, for, for our listeners out there that are looking for financial time and location freedom, and they're on their adventure, their magical adventure to get there, what is the biggest piece of advice that you could give those guys? What's the biggest takeaway that you would offer them, Brian? I would say one to know it's possible. I remember when I first came to town and I met a composer making six figures a year, it didn't freak me out. It actually inspired me because it's like, well, if he can do it, then maybe I can do it. Right. So I think just realizing there are people that have in a very short amount of time, uh, radically changed their financial future and it's possible. Um, now it does take some disciplines. It does take some planning. Um, but it, it is definitely possible. So I think that that mindset, I remember reading um, one of my favorite real estate books is the, um, the Millionaire Real Estate Investor by Gary Keller, right? Okay. Yeah. And, and a few other, like it's a basically, it's a group of, of, I don't know, 30 multimillionaire investors who are all sharing their wisdom about how they did it. Oh, there it is. Right there, it, bam. It, nice. If you've not read it, you should. But I, like, so... I've basically followed a lot of those steps in that book, right? And so one of it was think a million, like, is it even possible? And at first I was like, well, yeah, I don't don't think so, but maybe, I guess, like, oh, wait, this guy in the book actually did it. So maybe it is possible. So thinking that, right? And then buying a million, right? And so in 2009 to 2012, we were able to do that, like, you know, acquire that when, hey, Good news. When you control a million dollars of real estate and it doubles in value, which it will eventually, now you've just made a million bucks, right? And so um, that whole thing of, of to the point of, I remember when I read stories in there about the receive a million, right? Mm. And it was a guy making a million dollars from real estate in one year. And to mm. me, that was just a mind blower. I was like, I, I didn't even, it didn't resonate with me. It, sh- it didn't necessarily shock me, but it was just like, it was sort of like realizing something's the possible. It's like somebody who never realized you could go to the moon and they're like, really? We went to the moon in 1969? And then you did it. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And, but it's like some guy living in Africa that didn't even know it was possible. It was kind of like me. Like, really? That's possible that someone could do that. And now to be at a point where like the spreadsheet, it's like, wow, this is, this is not the far off goal that I, I thought it was at one point. Um, so I think just realizing it's like, it is possible um, and you can do it. Um, that, it, it's funny there's a tagline in that book it's like like anybody can do it will you right yeah. that, that's the real question is like what are you willing to give an exchange and the the amount that you give an exchange is not disproportionate right it's it's mm-hmm. the in fact i i feel like what i gave in exchange for the financial abundance was like very small in comparison to everything else i do in life totally. so so um it is definitely possible and i would say it's worth it so get started and go do it. That's, that's awesome advice. And, you know, changing your mindset. I think that's super huge. Like I did a lot of trainings with T Harvecker and peak potentials in the beginning. And he gave me these little, uh, like cards. They're about the size of a playing card. And they had all these affirmations on there. Like, you know, I, I'm financially free. I, I work because I choose to, not because I have to, I'm a millionaire and like all these things. And there was like double sided, there was like 10 on each side and I laminated them and I had them in the shower and I used to just freaking like read them all 
the whole time when I'm in the shower, I'm just like washing myself and I'm like reading these things. And then I caught myself like a few years later, two or three years later, um, talking to someone in a conversation and they asked me something about my lifestyle. And I said, well, I'm financially free and I, and I work because I choose to, not because I have to. And it just like came out in my conversation. I'm like, holy crap, like I've programmed myself and it worked. And um, yeah, so super powerful. Yeah. Um, what, what about you, Dave? What, uh, what uh, wisdom and advice would you want to pass on to people on their path to financial time and location freedom? I think you've got to meet good people, right? You've got to find successful people. Put yourself in an environment where you can meet people that are successful and be of service to them, right? Pick, pick their brain, right? Understand, um, you know, um, get exposed to new ideas because you, you want to have a good understanding of what, what the possibilities are and then find something that, you know, that fits themselves, right? Again, I, I, I think I talked about earlier, the most important thing I think for any investor to do is to know thyself, really understand what you're trying to accomplish and, and what your personal um, beliefs may be, right? And I always tell like the, the difference between buying a single family home versus buying a syndicated investment, right? Well, for some people, the idea of giving their money to someone else and letting them just take off and run with it, no matter how well that investment does, the, they will never, ever feel comfortable with that because they're never, ever going to trust that that person is making all the right decisions, right? So for that kind of person, they should buy an asset where they have 100% control because that's mm. important to how they sleep at night. Mm -hmm. And other people, they don't want the responsibility of that. They want to be mm -hmm. able to make money by, you know, and, and, and go spend time and not have to think about their investments. So I think it's important for people to have an, a, a really strong understanding of what's possible out there and then understand just how they're wired and then figure out a path that fits from what's possible to how they're wired and then, you know, find good people that can help them along that way. Yeah, that's huge. We don't do these deals alone. I mean, you think about just a single family transaction. So many people are involved in that. It's, relationships are huge. That's awesome. Well, I really, really appreciate you guys uh, joining me today. It's been a great conversation. You guys are wealth of knowledge. Um, I really respect you guys. I love what you're doing. For our listeners out there that would like to follow up with you, stay connected and you know, find out about these opportunities that you have as they unfold. How, how does one stay in touch? Yeah, the best place is to go to capitalstackinvestments.com. So www.capitalstackinvestments.com. And that's the best way. There's a form you can fill out there and stay in touch. But, you know, we're, we're looking to partner with great people. Uh, primarily, we do deals where, uh, with accredited investors. Um, but, you know, we provide information and can send out articles and interesting investing things from time to time. So it's a great way to stay in touch. So that, that's probably the best way. Awesome. Excellent. And for all of you listening and watching out there, I'm going to have the links at the bottom of the show notes. So you'll be able to click on them and connect with Brian and Dave from there. Brian and Dave, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you with me. Really appreciate your time. Always awesome. I'm looking forward to coming out there, Dave, and chowing down some crawfish with you. And Brian, we've got to have another jam again soon. Uh, I'm really amped to come out and see you guys. So uh, uh, thank you once again. And for all of our listeners, uh, I hope you've got a ton of value out of this. If you have, make sure to subscribe and uh, follow along. And, and this is me tuning out right now, your host, Bryce Robertson. Until next week, live large and live free.